cannibalism, you know, along with something like rape, was something you just didn't talk about. You know, you didn't you didn't analyze, you didn't, you know, get to the bottom of, you didn't try to document, you didn't count the numbers. Um, that's changing. I mean, we have fewer proscriptions on what we talk about in history, which is, I think, a good thing. Um, but for a while, you know, that wasn't considered something, you know, that, that was um, tasteful or worth exploring. You know, people understood it had happened. Uh, but, you know, we also sort of tended to think, well, you know, these were done by cannibals meaning primitive peoples, you know, not by by Western peoples or advanced peoples or that sort of thing. And now we know that that's not true either. Hello, this is Robinson Earhart getting my face off of the screen here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 141. And this total banger of an episode is with Pins the Podcat and Norman Neymark who is Robert and Florence McDonnell, Professor of East European History here at Stanford. He's also Senior Fellow of the Hoover Institution and the Institute of International Studies. One of the reasons why I love this episode so much, aside from just how great Norman is, is that I know so little about history, which I, I keep saying. So whenever I have the opportunity to talk about it, I learn so much. And Norman is the top of the top in his specialty. He's worked on a wide array of topics related to the Cold War, genocide, communism, Hitler, Stalin, and more. But in this episode, we stick pretty much exclusively to the world history of genocide. N naturally, or perhaps perhaps not naturally, I didn't really know that there was much, a debate, much of a debate about just what constitutes genocide. That's where we start what constitutes genocide, how it was defined, how it is defined. And then from there, we begin with the the faintest reaches of history, so prehistory, Neanderthals and beyond, before moving up through biblical times, the Mongol conquest, the Crusades, the colonial period, and even more modern event, modern events. There are three caveats I have got at least three, we'll see if more come up, that I, I've, I've got to mention. First, there are glaring absences in the discussion. So we don't talk about the Holocaust or the genocides under Stalin, among others, which are perhaps the, the most glaring omission. And I decided to do this not because they're unimportant, because obviously they're not, but because they're very well covered, and I wanted to devote, to devote our time to other less often mentioned genocides or genocides that are less often mentioned in contemporary discussions because uh, naturally uh, people were probably talking a lot about the Mongols back in, in Mongol time. But so that's that's the first thing I wanted to mention, and there will be plenty of opportunity to go into more depth on those two topics in future episodes. Second, there are, there are plenty of other significant genocides that we didn't get to, and for that, I, I largely blame time. And then last, in my my first question, I informed Norman about his own family background. I think based on, I think I told him that his parents were from 
a region called Silesia. And it was, this was based purely on some biographical details I, I gleaned from Wikipedia and was summarily told that I was entirely incorrect. So here's a, a PSA to be careful with that, though I'm sure I will make more mistakes like this in the future since I can't exactly pre-interview all of my guests to make sure I know everything about them before we speak. And with all this being said, if you'd like to read more, Norman has done a lot of work on genocide, and I highly, highly recommend his book, Genocide, A World History. It's what I read before we spoke. It is brief, clear, comprehensive, and endlessly fascinating. So please like, comment, review, subscribe, follow. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. And... Now, without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Norman. Please correct me if you think I'm characterizing things incorrectly, but I see your work as centered around two things. So genocide on the one hand and then modern Eastern Europe on the other, which <laughs> happened to go quite well together. And this then, it raises two questions for me. So the first is whether it's in part like an accent of your history that these topics interest you so much because you have a, a Jewish background and your parents are from Galicia. And then second, whether, I mean, to the extent that historians are fundamentally driven by narrative, as I've learned, uh, you've been so focused on Stalin, communism, and genocide because stories of this sort about inequality and injustice and revolution are the kind that grip you most. Uh, so let me just, let me just, um, let me, I'll try not to parse your statement. I mean, one of the things I would say, by the way, is don't believe web pages. You know, my my parents, I mean, my mother was born in this country. Her father was uh, from uh, Galicia. My father was born actually in Belarus or Belarus, um, in Babarysk, but came as a, you know, young teenager to the okay, United Well, this States. is good to know. So, so you know, don't believe web pages. I mean, they, they put things up and then it's repeated and, you know, and usually out of date. Um, so that first of all, but second of all, let me just tell you a little bit how I got into this work because I think that, um, uh, you know, the most important part is that, uh, in the 1980s, really, um, I, I had worked up to that point on, uh, on Imperial Russia, uh, Poland in the, in Imperial Russia. And that was because, you know, I'm an archival historian. And, uh, at that point, you could only work in, in Russian and Polish archives on, you know, earlier stuff. In other words, on 19th century stuff. So I worked on 19th century and wrote a couple books on, um, actually on the revolutionary movement. When I came back to Stanford in the 1980s, I was working on a book on um, Soviet occupation of Germany, which I finished, um, uh, you know, in the mid-90s. But what happened, as you know, um, in the early uh, 90s was the war in Yugoslavia. Uh, 
And I had spent quite a bit of time, both in my studies, I had studied Serbo Croatian, I had been in Yugoslavia, and I had thought about Yugoslavia a lot. And uh, as the country fell apart and people started killing each other uh, in the war in Bosnia uh, and Serbia and Croatia, I um, I got interested in this whole problem of inter-ethnic relations and how uh, peoples could start slaughtering one another. And it's clear the fact that I come do come from a Jewish background, you know, had something to do with the fact that, you know, I'm interested in, in genocide. But I didn't know much about the Holocaust at all. In fact, I had never worked on the Holocaust uh, until that point. And, and, and in fact, um, you know, I started working on this book on ethnic cleansing. You know, I was thinking about the issue of ethnic cleansing. And um, I wanted to work on it comparatively. So I thought of some other cases of ethnic cleansing. And a colleague of mine here in Jewish history said, well, if you're going to do ethnic cleansing, you've got to work on the Holocaust. And I said, well, you're probably right. So um, I then started working on the Holocaust. And I do have German. And uh, I knew something, obviously, about the Holocaust and had uh, done some reading in German history. I mean, I knew German history pretty well. Although in those days, you know, people, even when they studied German history, didn't study much about the Holocaust. I mean, now it's inevitable. But then it wasn't. So I dug into the Holocaust then a little bit for that book. Um, and the book is called Fires of Hatred. It came out in 2001. And that was a comparative study then dealing with ethnic cleansing and genocide and that sort of thing. And from that point on, then, you know, I was kind of fascinated by this question of why this happens in human history. Because I had lived in Yugoslavia. I had studied Yugoslavia. I had friends, professors who knew a lot about Yugoslavia. And nobody expected that war. And nobody expected that Serbs, Croats, and Muslims would start cutting each other apart, especially this kind of Serbian attack on the Bosnian Muslim nation. Nobody uh, expected that. People who said they did, I think, are just... Um, reading back in the history what they'd like to think today. Um, so that really uh, intrigued me, this whole problem then, you know, because then if you look at things like how the Jews lived in, in Germany in the 19th century, you know, they were perfectly well assimilated and, you know, there was not a lot of inter-ethnic problems at all uh, in German society at the end of the 19th century. Again, people will look back and say, yes, there was, and there may have been some, uh, but on the whole, you know, Germans live pretty well. Uh, I mean, Jews live pretty well in, uh, in imperial, late imperial Germany. And you can even say, you know, then I got interested in the Armenians. I mean, I have a good pal, Ron Sunni, in the, in the field who is uh, of Armenian background. And we started talking Armenian genocide things. Started reading about the Armenian genocide. Started working with him a little bit in a group of uh, Turkish and Armenian historians who were thinking about genocide why it happened in 1915 with the Armenians. And you realize the Armenians lived pretty well in the Ottoman Empire, too, uh, until the late 19th century. I mean, there were some bad massacres at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. But on the whole, Armenians were considered the most favored millet, meaning that they were the, you know, they were the religious group that was, uh, you know, given a lot of preference and a lot of deference and made a lot of money and, you know, did good, did well in the Ottoman Empire. So how does this fall apart? How does this end? How do people then turn on each other and start killing 
Um, and so that kind of question then sort of obsessed me a little bit. And I uh, started doing a lot of comparative reading. I did a, co-edited a book on the Armenian genocide. Soviet colleagues, you know, I have Soviet field became a field when I wrote this book on Soviet occupation of uh, Germany. So I became conversant in the Soviet field. So colleagues in the Soviet field will say, yeah, that may be genocide over there, but not here in the Soviet Union. We don't have genocide. I said, wait a minute, you know, look at what Stalin did in the 1930s. Can't you call that genocide? No, 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 was the answer. So I started uh, digging into that situation and felt, no, I thought I was right and they were wrong. So I tried to, I wrote a little book called Stalin's Genocides, which, um, you know, made the argument, made the case. It's really an argument more than a, you know, long empirical book about what happened in the 1930s, but made the argument that, listen, you got to think about this as genocide as well. And once I started doing that, I started thinking, well, there's genocide everywhere, you know, and, and then I'd give talks, uh, you know, about some of my work and people would say, well, what about American Indians? And they'd raise their hand and say, well, what about, you know, Aborigines in Australia? And what about... You know, peoples in Africa and things like that. And I started thinking about, and, you know, it was perfectly clear to me that these were also genocides. And I started digging deeper and, and looking at some of these cases. And I enjoyed the work. I mean, you don't enjoy the work because of the killing, but you enjoy the work because you learn about new situations, new uh, challenges that people have had to face. And then the mass killing that took place in North America. Uh, in the antipodes, in Africa, and elsewhere. So I started teaching, you know, about world history of genocide. And then Oxford came knocking and said, would you write a little book on in one of our series on genocide? That's the book you read, uh, the 2016 book, I think it is, um, called uh, Genocide of World History. And... Uh, yeah, so that it just intrigued me that everywhere in world history we find genocide. And I don't know if you read it or looked at it, but we, uh, with other colleagues headed up by a, a very distinguished scholar of genocide, Ben Kiernan at Yale, we've just published this summer a three-volume Cambridge World History of Genocide. And I was the editor of the third volume and then wrote a couple pieces in it. Um, uh, and so that's where I am right now. And I'm still working and thinking about genocide and, um, you know, trying to finish up a manuscript right now, which is called the facets of genocide. And it's more a kind of, you know, what, what, what is built into genocide over time rather than concentrating on the specific incidents or even the kind of flow of history you know, from ancient times to the present, I'm really trying to think about um, the structure, as it were, of genocide and how it, you know, how it plays out in various genocidal situations. So that's, that's the, that's the history of, of my involvement with the question. Sounds like I was entirely wrong. And I have, I have a few things to say. So I, I wasn't, I didn't really understand exactly what you said. So I just decided to give you 
my version of how I got <laughs> that into is this totally fine field. in retrospect. Whether you're right or wrong, I, I won't I won't judge. Yeah. So I I do tend to rely on Wikipedia for some background information. That's so a big mistake. Yes. You know, we use everybody uses Wikipedia, right? It, it, and you know, historians are also look at Wikipedia. But you got to be careful. Yeah, this seemed like a, a sort of harmless, innocuous detail. Why would that be wrong where his parents were born? But one detail in your response that I wanted to ask you about, though we don't have to go into a lot of detail about it. I'm just curious. It's kind of tangential. Is you described yourself as an archival historian. And I know you were just like an hour ago at Hoover working with the archives, but I've never heard this phrase archival historian before. So what is an archival historian? What makes them distinct from other types of historians? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a good question. And by the way, I describe myself as an archival historian, but much of this work, especially the genocide work, is not archival. But let me let me just say that, um, you know, traditionally, historians are trained and develop uh, and, and are able to create new knowledge, right? I mean, that's the idea. When you publish a book, you want to create new knowledge. Well, how do you create new knowledge? Well, one of the ways is to find new sources and fresh sources. And how do you find something that's fresh and new and, and lively and fun? Uh, and that is to go into archives. Otherwise, you're just ending up writing what other people have written or you read their books and then you kind of regurgitate it on the page, which I have done as well, by the way. I mean, the world history of genocide is not an archivally based book. You know, it's, uh, it's based on other people's work, but also on, on published documents and memoirs and that kind of thing. There's a lot of interesting and fresh material in it, but it's not archival. But I was trained as an archival historian, which means, you know, you go to archives, you, you, you carve out a little piece of the past and you try to recreate it in a way that no one's done before. And that's one of the most exciting things about history, you know, is to be able to do that. And archives have a special kind of uh, quality to them, especially if you get to know them well and you know the institutions that you're, that the archives come from that have a really exciting, uh, you have an exciting ability to recreate the past, right, in ways that no one's done before. So for a number of my books, I've done that. And then... Uh, the most recent book, actually, that I published, which was 2019 and just came out in paperback this year, is actually a book called um, Stalin and the Fate of Europe. And that's a series of case studies of Stalin's activities in Europe after the Second World War, Soviet policies in Europe after the Second World War. And for that book, then in almost every case, I went to the archives, right? I used archival materials. In other words, that... Um, shed light in a new way on um, on um, the particular subject I was dealing with, which was the development, political developments after the Second World War. If you take a book like uh, Genocide of World History, which starts, you know, from prehistory in the Bible, as you know, all the way up to the present, and you use other people's work and, you know, published documents and memoirs and things like that. Um, you know, you put together the story, hopefully, in an interesting and lively and in some ways novel way. 
but it doesn't have quite the quality, you know, of a true archivally based historical study, which, you know, usually, um, as I say, creates fresh knowledge. I didn't create fresh knowledge in, in the book you read, uh, The World History. Um, what I did is try to, you know, write an interesting and important and, and, um, a comprehensible story of genocide. Uh, but it's not archivally based, right? But I, you know, that, that's the difference. So an archival history is, you know, you know, a historian is a person who goes in the archives and loves it. And I'm still that person. And that's why I still deal with these archive seminars at Hoover that we talked about, or that I talked to you about. Um, uh, but generally, you know, I'm writing from, you know, this, this new genocide book is also from secondary sources. You know. Every time you said uh, fresh knowledge, I could feel myself getting excited and, and, and hungry. But everything you said just makes sense. And you mentioned also this argument about what is genocide with regard to the Soviet Union. And that's where I'd like to go. But first, you also mentioned prehistory, and we'll get to prehistory. But I'm wondering first how the historian's interest in genocide interacts with or differs from the archaeologists or anthropologists or economic, anybody who might be working on genocide. So one guess I mean, I have is that your role, while data collection is obviously important, is synthesis in the form of narrative, but also maybe a, a broader, more diachronic focus. Right. No, no, I think that's exactly it. That, uh, you know, an archaeologist will look at, uh, you know, the results of what's been dug up at various sites. And um, I just read a piece, actually, in our world history of genocide, a nice piece that was written by a couple of people who are clearly part of the prehistory, the field of prehistory. I won't call it archaeology. I, can, I think they're prehistorians more than they're archaeologists, but they read archaeological results and they say okay you know it's tough we go from grave to grave there are these results this these people had their cranians bashed in here and those had their cranians bashed in there is this genocide is this not was it massacre was it war and there are various implements and problems and issues that they focus on uh to try to understand that problem Right. And 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 so they're very much into the sites. I mean, when you mention archaeologists, they're into the, you know, several dozen well-developed sites, especially in Europe or the newer sites. You know, they're always discovering new stuff. So there are new caves, you know, where there are new remains of 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 people who may have been in mass graves. And the people in mass graves, they try to understand, okay, what's going on in those mass graves? Why are there mass graves, right? And uh, and uh, they ask different kinds of questions. And, and obviously what I do, I mean, I say, I don't know, I think in the world history, I must have said five sentences about prehistory or six sentences. So my job then is to, you know, read what they say in general and then try to, you know, give my six sentences about what happened in prehistory. And um, so uh, it's a very different kind of enterprise. And, uh, you know, their, um, you know, their work is very detailed and very valuable and changing all the time. I mean, we're learning new things all the time. And then there are new hypotheses, you know, and the whole business of the origins of man, 
and, you know, uh, Neanderthals and Homo sapiens and others. I mean, they're now other, obviously they're discovering other, um, sapiens who are out there, right? And who, uh, they dig up and they say, wait a minute, this is not Neanderthal and this is not Homo sapien. This is something different. And, and so, you know, they they have a different kind of job than, than we do. And, um, you know, they do their job well. I, I worked with archaeologists. Actually, some of my time in Yugoslavia was spent on archaeological digs, uh, you know, working with uh, kind of Bronze Age uh, peoples, the Illyrians who lived on the, uh, what is Yugoslavia today. And we were digging up Illyrians, basically. Um, and it was, uh, you know, this is exciting, but very precise work, very difficult work where you have to be very careful about, you know, what you're measuring, what you're preserving, how you, how you identify it and so on and so forth. So it's a, it's, you know, it's a very, uh, interesting, uh, professional, uh, branch of knowledge. Well, there there's a whole host of conceptual questions we could talk about, but because I'd like to get to the specifics, I'll just try to I'll try to limit myself to just one more. So, my understanding is that genocide is a relatively recent con- concept, which is I mean reflected in the in the fertile soil for debate you've already a- alluded to, but what is its origin and how did people think of what we now consider genocide before it's definition had been agreed upon and i guess it's not agreed upon yet so obviously uh, i believe i think and i have written about genocide before there was a term genocide and people called it various things you know to horrible catastrophes or catastrophe like no other or you know to mass mass killing or mass murder or whatever people called it various things uh, churchill during the second world war at one point Early on in the Nazi campaign in the East says we are, we are in the presence of a crime with no name. Um, in point of fact, uh, there was this Polish Jewish jurist, international jurist by the name of Raphael Lemkin, who had been struck by this fact for a very long time, already since the 1920s. And Lemkin, uh, you know, just simply was fascinated by this phenomenon uh, that he eventually coined the term genocide, but I'll get to that in a second, and kind of followed up on it in the 1930s. And he he, he invented some terms that didn't take very well uh, for genocide. He kept struggling with coming up with a way uh, to, get, to get international law to recognize that there is a crime out there that is special and different from other kinds of crimes. Um, and he eventually, came, during the Second World War, he came to the United States, uh, 1943, and he coined the term genocide. In, and then he published this in one of his 1944 books called The Axis Occupation of Europe. And he basically coined the term genocide and said, okay, this is... You know, this is a kind of intentional mass murder of ethnic, racial, religious, and I think he even said political or social groups. In other words, he, he, he had it very widely cast, but he coined the term genocide in that book. Uh, 
even beforehand. I mean, he'd already in 43, he had already done this. And then when the war ended, I mean, again, you know, Lemkin was particularly struck, obviously, at this point by the Holocaust. But it's important to understand that he was already obsessed with trying to find something to deal with this phenomenon already in the 30s before there was a Holocaust. Um, I mean, he knew about the Armenian genocide. Uh, there was a big massacre called the Simula Massacre of um, of uh, uh, Syriac Christians uh, in the eastern part of the Ottoman Empire, in the eastern part of Turkey and Iraq and Iran, where they all met. And anyway, so 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 Lemkin was already obsessed by this in the 30s, and in the 40s, then he comes up with this term, right? And he becomes a kind of one-man lobbying campaign to get international jurists to, to look at this term and say, yeah, this means something, and we should have a law against it. He goes to Nuremberg in 1946. And the people in Nuremberg listen to him, <clears throat> and he has some impact on Nuremberg. But Nuremberg, as you may know, was not about you know, genocide or about punishing people, the, the Nazis for the Holocaust. Nuremberg was about aggressive war, I mean, the kind of a war we have now, by the way, in Ukraine, where, you know, uh, the Russians have invaded Ukraine. It's clearly a case of aggressive war. And uh, World War II was clearly a case of aggressive war, Nazis against others. And the, and the justices, for a number of different reasons we don't need to get into, weren't that interested in the fact that six million Jews are somewhat less, we know the number now, the better were killed during the war. That was not their main thing. Their main thing, I mean, they used pictures, you know, from, from the camps and things like this to kind of bolster their arguments, but they were mostly interested in aggressive war. And that's what Gehring and others were accused of and others, some were hanged for. Um, it was aggressive war. Uh, and Lemkin was there at Nuremberg. I th Genocide was mentioned a couple of times, I think, in the final documents, but basically that's not what they were accused of at Nuremberg. But Lemkin kept up his campaign, and, and some of it began to stick because people were concerned about what they called crimes against humanity and war crimes, which were mentioned in the Nuremberg indictments. And um, that helped then put together and Lemkin, you know, lobbied in, and other people too. I mean, it wasn't just a single man, right, story, but basically lobbied for this uh, convention uh, that the uh, UN passed in December 1948. And this is a convention for the, for the prevention and punishment of genocide. And in that convention, genocide is defined. Right. And it's defined in somewhat narrower terms than Lemkin had defined it. Uh, but it does say, you know, people forget this. And I point this out in my book that in the preamble to the convention, it does say genocide occurs at all times and all places. Right. So it's not just Second World War. It's not just Holocaust. It's the, it's a, a general concept of international law that applies essentially to intentional mass murder of a group of people, you know, ethnic in the, in the um, convention that they're identified as ethnic, national, racial, or religious groups, right? Those are the four groups that are recognized. You'll note not political groups and not social groups, which I think is in retrospect, a mistake, but, but that's different. That's a different kind of question. 
Um, and it's destroying the group. And then there's a comma as such. That means you're not just killing a bunch of people, right? In other words, you're not just murdering Jews, however many thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions, but you're trying to destroy them as a group. So there's this kind of group identity and sociological basis uh, behind genocide, as it's defined in the convention, as Lemkin in some ways conceived of it. And even since, you know, that definition has undergone some evolution as well. Uh, since we have courts, I mean, people didn't pay much attention. I mean, it's important to note people didn't pay much attention to genocide or to the convention until really until the seventies, <clears throat> you know, with Holocaust growth of Holocaust consciousness and also, you know, people starting to talk about genocide and Holocaust and then the eighties a little bit more. And then in the nineties, you know, international attention turned more to this concept of genocide because we had it in front of our faces, right? In Bosnia and in Rwanda, especially. So those two play, and the threat of genocide in Kosovo at the end of the 90s, 99. So then for Bosnia and for Rwanda, we have courts. The ICTY, that was the court for Yugoslavia, an international court for dealing with the crimes in Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavia, and then uh, the courts for Rwanda, which met in Arusha. So the ICTY and the ICTR then are legal group, are, are courts that are trying people for various crimes, including the crime of genocide. And they develop then, you know, all laws, you know, develop. I mean, no matter what one thinks of the American Constitution, you know, what applied at the end of the 18th century doesn't necessarily apply today, right? Uh, and, and so laws evolve and courts are there to interpret the laws. So, so the ideas about genocide have evolved. And I'll give you one quick example and leave it at that, which is that, um, uh, the issue of rape, you know, was never part of the Nuremberg indictment. Nobody thought about rape as a part of genocide. Uh, but it turns out rape is very much a part of genocide. Uh, and the abuse of women, sexual abuse and exploitation of women is very much a part of genocide. So you see then the Bosnian courts and the Rwandan courts both documenting gen rape as a constituent element of genocide. In other words, it is genocide mass rape. And and, you know, translate that to the present and what the Russians have done in Ukraine, especially in those occupied areas that were liberated, we know that they raped a lot of women. And that this is then part of the indictment, as it were, that the courts, in this case, the International Criminal Court, which was set up the beginning of this century in the Hague, the courts are paying a lot of attention to rape. So in other words, there's an evolving way to think about genocide. You shouldn't think of it as a kind of definition that is hard and fast and can't be changed and, and doesn't evolve. Uh, it does evolve and the interpretations evolve. And, and God knows we have 
hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of lawyers, international lawyers in the world who work on subjects like this, you know, and think about them. Mm -hmm. Well, we will probe the definition further by talking about why certain events should be called genocide or not soon. But you echoed Lemkin a few minutes ago, writing that genocide occurs at all times and places. <clears throat> and we should we should begin our discussion, I think, of the history with the earliest times, uh, which stretch back before the written record to the, the time of your Illyrians and beyond. So here's where the work of the archaeologists really comes in. And just what are the central findings of their research about genocide in human humans? Prehistory? Okay, so they're, they're, no, go, go ahead, finish what you were going to say. Genocide in, in our prehistory. Okay. Um, so again, I'm not, uh, I'm far from an expert on prehistory, right? Um, but I think the thing to say is that, and I've already said it in some ways, is there's a lot we don't know, right? There's a lot we don't know. Um, and you can only speculate a little bit about it. For example, people have speculated about Homo sapiens having committed genocide against Neanderthals. In other words, that this was a different people, a different way of looking at tribes or groups of people who lived together. And that there were, I mean, a lot of people have talked about the intersection of the, the two. In other words, we know, for example, from all this new genetic stuff, right, that everybody's, not everybody, but a lot of people are part Neanderthal. I'm part Neanderthal, right? But rape is a big part of genocide. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there was a lot of uh, interaction, obviously, between these groups. But other people have suggested, given the remains in caves, you know, that Homo sapiens had, had engaged in a kind of murderous campaign against groups, again, group is important, of Neanderthals. So in prehistory, it's likely that some warlike situations, rival clans, rival um, uh, I mean, tribes, it's almost, you can't call them tribes, you know, but, but that, that's what I'm calling them, um, engaged in genocidal actions against each other. Uh, and that, you know, groups of peoples were eliminated. And against, we know from, from, from cave dwelling kinds of things that, um, uh, I mean, and, uh, from graves that they've uncovered in caves. Uh, that there was mass murder and that this mass murder took place, you know, under much smaller scale, but you could probably call it genocide. You know, I'm, 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 I would be very tentative. I, I hope in my book I was very tentative about this. It's now been several years since I wrote the book, but uh, I feel very tentative about about answering a question like that because there's just so much we don't know and there's so much that's still being discovered. And um, there is a, there's an interesting tendency. I mean, I, I, as I mentioned to you, I did a little bit of reading on this recently. There is a kind of tendency to, I, I think, to idealize uh, prehistory. You know, that, that, that the fault, as it were, with mankind is modernization and, and modern man is the, is the, you know, the be all and end all of evil in this world. And there's something in us all that want to kind of make these primitive tribes more humane. Um, and I think that's probably a mistake. <laughs> I mean, I think that probably there was a lot of elimination of, of 
different groups. But again, I'm not a specialist and it won't be. Uh, you know, there's certain fields I know where I have to rely on others. I, I won't do that work myself. So that, that's what I would say about prehistory is that it, 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 uh, you know, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to know what happened exactly. I mean, we have these uh, stories. I think, um, I told them a little bit in, uh, in the book from the Bible, you know, about the, about the Hebrews and, uh, you know, this would be, um, uh, you know, 12,000 BC or something like that, you know, and, uh, 13,000 where the rabbis are sort of saying what happened, right? Uh, and the rabbis in the, you know, uh, in the sixth and seventh century are saying, well, what happened back then to the earliest Hebrews? They can't know either, right? When they're writing the old, essentially the old testament, um, they can't know what happened. Uh, but there are stories that come through the generations and they, they, you know, recapitulate those stories. And in those stories, uh, that they tell, there is genocide, which means that they know about genocide, that they can conceive of genocide, that maybe it even's happening around them, you know, when they're, when they're doing this writing. Um, so. You know, who knows? Mm -hmm. Maybe I shouldn't have been, but I was actually very surprised. It was probably the most surprising thing to me in the book to read that the Old Testament is a major source of historical record for the early history of the genocide. And my, my surprise probably stems from a, a, a basic prejudice that is suspect of religious writings. But... I was also surprised to see that the Iliad and maybe more the Iliad than the Odyssey, but the Iliad also factored into your historical interpretation. Yeah, no, I mean, um, um, look, uh, historians, you know, uh, talk about their objectivity. They try to be objective modern historians. I mean, nobody wants to distort the past or to or to uh, make it into something that it wasn't. And it's very hard sometimes to, um, it's very hard to uh, uh, reconstruct the past in its absolute objectivity. In fact, it's impossible. So, but, you know, but there are historians. I mean, Herodotus was one of the most famous, you know, there were three-headed monsters and there were this and there were, you know, and, and, you know, and he's considered one of the father of history along with Thucydides. Thucydides was more, trying to be more objective, but, you know, somebody like Herodotus is, you know, telling stories uh, that he hears. And it's a little bit like the rabbis who are telling stories in the Old Testament, you know, about what they hear and what they see and what they, what they've noted down uh, over the centuries. So, um, it's a it's a wonderful source, I think, the Old Testament for thinking about, you know, what not so much what went on as what was going on then as when they were writing. Because again, as I said, they can conceive of mass murder. Uh again, I, I you know, I cited these various passages from Deuteronomy, you know, having to do uh with the Amalekites and the Hebrews' attack on the Amalekites. 
sense. And, you know, you read that and you see that it has the quality of verisimilitude. Now, did the Hebrews really kill off the Amalekites? Well, it's hard to prove now, you know, and, you know, there've been plenty of, uh, you know, this, um, this story of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, you know, and the walls came tumbling down. Well, and then Joshua ended up killing all the people in Jericho, you know, the Amalekites who lived there, and and taking the women off as slaves. Archaeologists have been digging around Jericho forever, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what happened in Jericho. Did anything happen in Jericho? Was Joshua really there or not? And it's hard to figure it out, you know. They've got some evidence, but not others. And mostly, it looks like mythology. But mythology has certain basic in fact, certain bases in fact. And, you know, a, a, a discreet historian, someone who doesn't exaggerate what they're reading or doesn't, you know, doesn't make mountains out of molehills to put it into everyday language, you know. Um, you know, you can get a lot from sources like that and from the Iliad and from like I said, from you know, from Herodotus too, you know, who is a is a myth maker. I mean, he made myths as well as in writing history. Well, you know, and some of us today also make do mythologies, and we have our own mythologies, you know, that we pass on as historians. And some of those mythologies, you know, need to be punctured too. But as long as you don't go overboard with it, you know, you're you're trying to reconstruct the past as best you can and understand what happened. And, uh, you know, you're doing, doing your job. Yeah. And even if it's hard to prove, like you said, that the Hebrews killed the Amalekites, it remains amazing that the same sorts of justifications, like divine right, for instance, are cited in the genocidal aspirations of the past, which at least lends very strong credence to Lemkin's thesis that genocide occurs in all times and places, regardless of whether the the prehistorical facts are, in fact, uh, factual. No, no, that, that, that's right. And I mean, we know, for example, uh, uh, I don't think I talk about this in the book at all, but we know from, from primatology that apes, you know, our closest relatives, don't commit genocide. They'll fight border wars. You know, they have hier hierarchical wars, you know, where the the senior male, the alpha males will kind of change places and they'll fight to the death, you know, to achieve that new, new height. But they don't attack other groups of apes and kill them. Only human beings do that. And human beings, as best we can figure out, have done it from the beginning of time. I mean, from the beginning of human history. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons... You know, the, the past and the present have an unusual relationship to each other. You know, they're not independent of each other. I mean, sometimes people think history is a kind of this abstract chronicle of the past, right? That you can somehow reconstruct in its, in its wholeness. You can't do that. You're always picking and choosing, right? Uh, I mean, our, our, the grandfather historian was named Fonranca, Leopold Fonranca, and he said, you know, I'm writing history of ESI Belikidesimus, meaning I'm reading history the way it happened. I'm writing history the way it happened. I mean, he claimed he knew the way the history happened. And of course, you don't know that. He's writing history the way he sees it from his point of view, you know, in the 19, uh, 1890s and the beginning of the 20th century, right? And he's, he's got a, he's got his point of view. 
uh, von Ranke, late 19th century point of view. And, you know, that point of view, uh, just like we have our point of view, and we're writing, it's constantly interacting. So what I'm trying to say is you not only learn about the present from the past, you learn about the past from the present. So, you know, if you have a case, or you have cases we know about where peoples attack other peoples and murder them all, you can go back and read Deuteronomy and you say, wait a minute, that's perfectly logical and reasonable, given what we've seen that's happened. I mean, you don't create one from the other, but the two have to talk to each other. And that way you understand the phenomenon, the historical phenomenon. Well, the... That one, that's a very nice insight. I really appreciate it. But the first, at least, um, uh, much more easily reconstructable, to the extent that it's reconstructable, chapter of genocidal history that I'd like to talk about is the Mongols and Genghis Khan, because they're, of course, a, a topic that never gets old. So roughly, to start us off, what's the story of their expansion? And then why does it get categorized by you as genocidal rather than, say, one that's just brutally violent and murderous, especially because you write that the Mongols weren't particularly interested in race or language or ethnicity or religion or any of the sorts of things that we contemporarily associate with genocide? Okay, so in general, you know, the 12th, 13th century, uh, Mongols expanded into... Well, they expanded all over Eurasia. I mean, they expanded into China. They expanded in the South, uh, into, um, you know, what you would call Turkestan and, you know, areas of Central Asia. They expanded into Europe. They were stopped only in, in, in Europe. They expanded into Hungary, which was a particularly nasty case uh, that I describe in the book. Um, in their expansion, I mean, there were several elements of their expansion. And on one level, you can, you know, just kind of categorize it as imperial expansion. And that's what it was. But the Mongols also killed groups of people. And in killing groups of people, I felt like you had to include it in the sort of history of genocide. And, and what they would do is in here, you know, they're killing groups of people you know, concrete groups of people, again, as such, right? Meaning they're trying to destroy the group and they're killing them, again, not necessarily on racial, religious grounds, um, but because they uh, opposed the Mongols or the Mongols felt that they opposed them. So they would destroy whole civilizations based on cities, killing everyone uh, if, you know, they didn't submit. If they submitted, that was another story. So in the case of Russia, for example, I mean, the Mongols were, you know, the so-called Mongol yoke, as it's called in Russian history. You know, it was a case where the Mongols would go in there and just, you know, beat up on the Russians. And so the Russian cities eventually agreed to submit to the Mongols. And what did that mean? It, mean it, it meant paying them an annual tribute. It meant turning over some of their women to them. There was a lot of intermarriage, actually, between Mongol princes and, and, um, and Russian princely families. 
Um, so there is a real kind of Eurasian combination that happens in Russia where the Mongols and their various offshoots and the Russians, you know, intermingle. But in some places, again, in Central Asia, in Hungary, elsewhere, China, uh, people said, no, we're not going to submit. We're not going to pay you. We're not going to turn over all our women to you. And in the end, they're destroyed in whole. And they slaughter them. I mean, this is a real mass murder. Uh, the case of Hungary, you know, which, uh, again, I describe in the book, because we have a lot of interesting and well-placed eyewitnesses of what happened. In the case of Hungary, they just went town to town, you know, and murdered everyone. And people tried to, men, women, and children. I mean, in this case, they didn't even take the women uh, and children. They just murdered everyone. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was a catastrophe for the Hungarian nation. You know, it's hard to know what percentage, you know, how many tens of thousands of Hungarians died uh, during the Mongol assault. Uh, we know the Hungarians didn't behave very well, too, that some Hungarians lined up with Mongols as a way to try to avoid being destroyed. But they were destroyed. So whole peoples that are attacked as peoples, as such, with the intention of eliminating which is the essence of the genocide definition. So that's why, like I said, you could, you could talk about the Mongols and the, you know, in a kind of um, template of a, imperial expansion. And it's hard to separate sometimes imperial expansion from, from genocide. But in this case, I think it, it should be included in genocide as well. Hmm. Well, let me push back slightly against the, the, the definition of genocide because at least to my ear, the force of the term genocide is it's based at to to a large extent beyond just the number of deaths on hate that is based on the identity of the targeted group. And because if not, it seems like any particularly violent war over something uh imp- innocuous or unrelated to identity, at least like a border dispute in which the losers sustain extreme casualties. It'll be called genocide, even if the two peoples have similar group identities. But maybe what's crucial here is that even if the dispute is, so to speak, innocuous, the Mongols did have a different group identity from who they were uh, subjugating. Yeah. No, I, you know, the, the pushback is not unusual and is not uh, outside the realm of scholarly debate and, you know, what people talk about. I mean, there are some scholars, for example, who think that um, you can't really separate war from genocide. Uh, I think that's not right uh, because there are some cases of genocide, and, uh, cases I've studied in Stalin or Mao's China or uh, Cambodia you know, we're not inspired by war. I mean, those were all internal cases that there was no war going on when those peoples were attacked and destroyed. But it's certainly true that war breeds genocide. And in a war-like situation, it's hard to separate, okay, what's war, what's genocide? Even, again, you know, taking something like today, the Russian um, attack on Ukraine, you know, the people say that it's genocide, and some people say, well, it's just a 
it's just a warlike occupation, you know, always, you know, some people are going to get killed, that kind of thing. So, so you get, um, you get multiple ways of looking at this, and I, I have no objection to that. Um, let, let me just put, but let, but let me say this, that genocide, and, and the courts have been very good about, about talking about this. You know, genocide is not about motivation. It's not if somebody hates somebody or not. Who cares? It's about intention. So, so you know, do you, do you intend to kill all or part of this group? And do you want to do it and have you organized yourself to do it, right? It's like a little bit like first-degree murder. Now, I know in a, in a, in a, in a courtroom, motivation makes a difference. But in the courtroom of history, when it comes to genocide, motivation is not important. What's important is intent. And that's why it's hard, you know, hard to sometimes prove intent. I mean, even in the part of people like, uh, like Hitler and Stalin, it's hard because there's no order. Uh, or Milosevic in, in Yugoslavia. There's no order that comes down. Uh, so you have to approve intent through their actual actions. In the case of the Mongols, you know, they intended to kill those people. They organized, you know, there was resistance. They said, okay, you're gone. You're out of here, basically. And they move in and they, you know, lay siege and then they kill everybody they can find and take the women away and the kids sometimes because women and children are too valuable to kill. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I don't, I don't have any problem with pushback and I don't have any problem with saying, you know, genocide is not hard and fast. It's not, you know, it's not, it's not something that's easy to categorize. It, it, you know, in this, uh, I mentioned to you, we have this three volume Cambridge World History of Genocide, the chief editor, as well as many, most of us who, who participated in the making of these books, you know, sort of didn't want to get into an argument about what's genocide and what's not. You know, we, we, you know, the various cases we look at, we don't want to spend a lot of time saying this is not genocide. This is, gen if you know what I mean. In other words, what we want to do is point out, you know, how, uh, these cases have characteristics like genocide, um, or not, uh, and, and, and not get into a kind of yay or nay, uh, situation because that, that's counterproductive. I mean, we had this, I don't know if you uh, recall, but we had this a little bit with Darfur in the beginning of the century where, uh, you know, the question was, do we intervene in Sudan to stop the killing of the people in Darfur, the western part of Sudan, the western you know, sections of Sudan? And the, and, and the answer, you know, depended a little bit on whether it was deemed genocide or not. Now, I'm not sure that's a necessary thing itself, but, but that's how people interpreted it. Well, two things happened. One, the Bush administration said, yes, it's genocide. And the UN said, no, it's not genocide. They're dealing with the same facts. They're dealing with the same situation. They're dealing with the same, you know, evaluators and primary documents and, you know, people on the ground. So it, 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 it strikes me that it's not a good thing to get an argument. You know, if it, if it's something that needs to be stopped and you can stop it, and you know, a form of mass killing, whether it's genocide or not genocide, you stop it if you can. 
can't you can't i mean i understand that um uh but i think it's just not productive again to get into these sorts of arguments and then you know when you work in genocide studies as i have now like i said since the really since the mid early 1990s you realize um that people always want to have their genocides peoples you know everybody wants their genocide and i don't like that either i mean i don't think that's a good way to think about this set of problems either and and therefore i like to sort of stay away from from the is this genocide or is this not genocide kind of question but instead use genocide as a kind of paradigm of a certain kind of international national political murderous behavior that's part of our system you know that's part of i say system i mean part of who we are how we live and how we live with each other and how we live with people in the rest of the world and i think it is part of it and therefore i stick with it you know some people i don't want to go into too much detail but but but, but there's a, a recent very interesting book by one of the most prominent genocide scholars in the world a man named Dirk moses it's called the problems of genocide and he wants us to give up the term i mean he doesn't like it anymore i mean he's one of the primary scholars in the field and he says nah you know, there's, there's too many reasons why it's not a not a useful term. I, I disagree with him. I mean, he's got a very sophisticated, long, complicated argument. Um, uh, but fundamentally, I disagree with him. In other words, I think it's a useful term. I think we should stick with it. I think there are reasons to stick with it. But, you know, there are plenty of, like I said, serious, uh, well-informed. I mean, nobody could be more serious or more well-informed than than Dirk about this um, people who uh, now are questioning uh, the term altogether. He wants to create another term, but that's a different kind of question. I don't, I don't want to, you know, don't want to get into that. But just as an example, in other words, the kind of pushback you give is always there. It's part of the story, you know, and it's maybe a little bit. I don't know. There's a good if there's a good uh, analogy for this or not, but uh, you know, like racism or even race, you know, there are always pushbacks. Yet, racism and race is something that's part of our lives. We know it's there. We know we know what we're talking about when we talk about racism and race. And similarly with genocide, we know what we're talking about. You know, the, the edges are blurry. You know, they're not sharply defined. And that makes it difficult. Well, I took down this name, Dirk Moses, because it's always nice to have multiple perspectives on an issue. So maybe I'll, I'll I mean, we both know there, there's a lot of material to mine here. So maybe I'll be able to have him on at some point. But this might sound like a silly question, though I think it's important and might point possibly to a difference in humanity or cultures across time. But were the atrocities committed by the Mongols considered immoral? And surely that that's a matter of perspective. I mean, I guess it's the story of genocide in the sense that the Crusades weren't immoral. The genocides of the Bible, even the Holocaust wasn't immoral for Hitler. So maybe I'm asking if by the contemporaries of the Mongols, 
their actions would have generally been decried as immoral in the same way sure. they were. Okay. Sure. Sure. I mean, sure, if you're the victim. Absolutely. I mean, take a, if you remember the Hungarian, again, you know, I point to this Hungarian part that I suggested to you. I mean, I, I, I'm blanking a moment on this uh, churchman's name who wrote a very elaborate description of what happened uh, in Hungary. And I cite him quite often. I'm not going to go find my book somewhere here, but I, w- I won't look it up right now. But he clearly thought this was immoral and was, you know, unchristian and unhuman, inhumane and wrong. Uh, and as he describes what happens, and we know what happens pretty much, you know, the, the, the you know, women getting dressed up in their finery so that they hope that the Mongols will take them away instead of killing them, and they kill them anyway. You know, he feels that it's a, a totally immoral situation and a horrible situation. And I'm sure the people, you know, in Khorasan and some of these other towns in Central Asia, you know, who were attacked by the Muslim, uh, by the Mongols, and also in China, where there was a lot of damage done. We don't really have a great sense of the numbers in China who were killed by the Mongols. But was, I mean, we're talking millions of people. Um, clearly, they thought that was immoral. Uh, you know, just like Jews, Poles, and Russians thought it was immoral, what the, what the Nazis were doing to them. Nazis didn't think it was immoral. Right. The distinction, though, that I see, and maybe this will make my question sound more plausible in case it didn't, the distinction between something like the Holocaust and the Mongol expansion is, let's say somebody's on death row today for multiple rapes and murders. Certainly, they don't want to be killed, but they will presumably grasp that their executioner is not, well, it depends on their views on the death penalty. They might not think that the their executioner is immoral. And in the case of the Mongol expansion, my understanding is that I think you, you mentioned there are, are there were three templates of Mongol expansion, but they gave people an ultimatum. They said, look, you can you can give us fealty, essentially, or these are the consequences. <laughs> my co-host but if i don't know if um a thousand years ago five thousand years ago the times of the bible this was sort of the law of the land where it was accepted Uh, you could you could make a an ultimatum like this uh and if you made the wrong choice then you suffered the consequences and that's just how it was but what it sounds like to me is that this isn't the case back then it would have been considered totally immoral by the the non yeah no absolutely absolutely i mean think about um you know um yeah let's leave it yeah cool okay sure no no i think i just think i just think it's uh you know from the perspective of the victims of genocide i mean you think you're you are being destroyed because you are a member of a group i mean you're not even singled out right I mean, again, I mean, maybe, maybe again, using the Holocaust as an example is, is a good way to do this. You're, you're, a, you're a German of a Jewish background, one, one Jewish grandmother. And you're being killed just like the full, full Jew who's very pious and, 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 and you say to yourself, well, what, what is the reasoning there? Right? Um, there is no reasoning. It's a, it's a, it's a sheer killing. I mean, it's a sheer impulse to destroy a people. 
on the part of those who are destroying it. So you're not being destroyed as an individual necessarily by the person who's destroying you, but you are an individual with your own differences. So it's always immoral. Um, and the person on death row, uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I can't, I can't speak for the person on death row. I think <laughs> that's too much for me. Sure. Well, not that all of these examples aren't good fodder for discussions of morality, but I, I've already mentioned the Crusades, and I think they're a particularly good one. So when were the Crusades, and then what was the real motivation behind them if the holy dimensions, as I think I ascertained from reading, were more of a public-facing sort of justification than the real motivation behind them so we're talking uh we're talking 11th century right uh mostly uh the crusades i mean as you know there were many of them uh four or five different crusade um uh, uh attacks uh, in the middle east and then there were some crusaders you know who attacked the Cathars, for example, in southern France and that sort of thing. Um, I mean, the Crusades were meant to be a kind of a religious um, campaign in order to um, seize the Holy Land from the so-called Saracens, you know, the, the, the alien uh, Muslim peoples of the region and uh, uh, and from Arabs or Arab uh, opponents. And, um, you know, they're, they're a complicated piece of medieval history in which um, lots of different things are at work, including the fact that uh, many of these knights and people who went on the Crusades, you know, had no money and were broke. And, um, were looking for, you know, a way to, to kind of enrich themselves and to also to, you know, I, I wouldn't diminish their religious motivations, but their religious motivations were in some ways to, to get, they could get rid of their sins. They could um, be cleared of any debts and things like this if they went on these crusades. So then they go to the Middle East, they end up in various parts. I mean, one of the Crusades, they basically destroy Byzantium, which is itself a Christian, you know, is a Christian um, uh, empire. And they destroy the heart of Byzantium in Constantinople and run away with all the goods and they start shipping things back and stuff like that. And then they go into Jerusalem and, and slaughter people, right? And... Um, so I felt like I had to include the Crusades in, in genocide, uh, again, because of the intentional mass slaughter that occurred, especially in Jerusalem, but in other parts of the Middle East as well, wherever the Crusaders went, they slaughtered uh, people. And they did it in part for material reasons, in part because they thought they were doing it in the name of the glory of God, in part because the Pope sent them, and in part because things back home were pretty bad. So, you know, they were trying to, um, they were trying to uh, solve a lot of their own problems. 
you know, through a genocidal action. I think that's the way I described it in my book a little bit. You know, I use the word genocidal in a very specific way, uh, uh, like genocide. But I'm not ready really to call it genocide. Uh, in that sense, again, I wanted to, I want to emphasize here again that I don't want to get involved, yay, nay, genocide, not genocide. What I want to do is say, okay, this is, this is a piece of human history that has a resemblance to other pieces of human history where similar kinds of things are done, which is to say mindless mass slaughter of people indiscriminately, not for necessarily warlike goals or aims to defeat an en enemy, but to kill them, again, using that uh, crucial little phrase in the convention as such, you know, to, to just destroy them. And so Jerusalem then, you know, I mean, they, people say, you know, five feet of blood and that kind of thing in the streets of Jerusalem or however many feet they describe it. And there was a lot, just a tremendous slaughter of everybody and sometimes even of Christians. I mean, that's the, that was the odd thing about it. You know, they didn't really discriminate very much. They just slaughtered everybody. Um, and some people would argue, well, maybe that's not genocide. But I, again, I don't want to get in that argument. I want to, I want to just sort of, as I say, describe this kind of uh, action. And, you know, the Pope has a lot to do with it and, and the, and the, and the, the assertion of papal supremacy and, um, and the way the Pope then can, uh, sort of redistribute wealth and power, you know, through the success of the Crusaders, which was, you know, fundamentally a materialist out, you know, I mean, it combined, you know, Christian fervor with materialist goals. When I hear the, the moniker Saracen, I think, uh, Lamort D'Arthur and all of that lore, Lamort D'Arthur. Yeah, and all of the all those texts, I I was at one point quite familiar with them, but they're indicative, I think, in a similar way to the Bible for prehistory of the attitudes in this case, moral sentiments and beliefs of the time, or at least a few hundred years later when Lamar D'Arthur was written, but others like Chrétien de Troyes' works or the Kings of England, those came before, but. Uh, that brings us to the Pope, uh, who you said sent them to the Holy Land. And on what basis, and I still find it hard to wrap my head around, did the Pope condone the rape, the murder, and the pillage, and all of that went on during the Crusades? I mean, again, I'm not, I'm not a specialist in medieval Europe or on, on the popes. So I, I'm, I'm hesitant, uh, to comment except to say, I don't think the pope cared. I mean, I think he was, uh, he was ready to see, uh, especially urban, uh, was ready to see the kind of death and destruction. It didn't matter. These were, these were infidels, uh, and the infidels, you know, their destruction did not mean much to him at all. These were not, these were not Christians. And, um, as a result, I mean, some of them were Christians actually, but the, but, but, but I think in general, the Pope, uh, was looking out for his, uh, power and his, um, uh, and his wealth 
and his influence uh, and the conquering, if possible, of Jerusalem uh, for his kingdom, right, on earth. And, um, you know, therefore, I just don't, I don't think it mattered much at all. And you do get, you do get, you know, scattered uh, reports from some people who thought this was awful, uh, from churchmen and that kind of thing. But in general, I think the Pope approved as long as he got his cut. And I'm afraid, you know, that was, uh, you know, that was the politics uh, of the papacy at that point. Well, one last thing about the Crusades, and then we can move on further closer to us in history. But I saw and was quite surprised that cannibalism was a non-negligible part of the Crusades. And I was wondering why this was and whether it's common in genocide. So before you answer, I saw... I mean, later on, as I was reading that in the the communist genocide in China under Mao, there was cannibalism but and, and necrophagy. But this was different because people were starving. But I imagine that in this case, at least, I mean, the othering of the, the slaughtered uh, dehumanizes them to the point that it lessens any inhibitions typically associated with eating people and and when you're hungry, but I'm just wondering is, if cannibalism is pretty common in genocide or this was, and China were more isolated cases. Well, it's an, it's an interesting question. Um, you know, I think you have to take a, maybe a step back and say what frequently happens in genocidal situations is that there's famine, there's hunger sometimes brought on by the political authorities themselves in various ways, purposefully brought on, in other words, by the political authorities, which is what I've argued about, you know, Ukrainian famine in 32, 33. Um, some scholars would say famine is always uh, essentially political. You're choosing who eats and who doesn't. So, that's the case. With China. But keeping that in keeping that in mind, I think it's more or less. Let's put it that way. Political. In the case of the Crusades, you know, my understanding is that uh, what happened is that they, you know, big armies got caught with no food, right? And uh, that the, you know, the available captives and victims of those armies were then sometimes eaten in, in cannibal-like situations. But it's the shortage of food that does it. In other words, I don't think cannibalism is an act of genocide. It, you know, I haven't really thought about that in the terms that you, you, you've put it. I don't think it's necessarily an act of genocide. I think it, what it is is much more the result of the sheer shortage of food. And, uh, you know, desperation on the part of people. I don't, you know, we're built to do a lot of nasty things. Uh, when I say we, I mean human beings can do all kinds of nasty things. I don't think we're necessarily built to be cannibals, but we, we can be. And that's the, that's the sad story. Now, another thing to say that occurred to me when you were asking your question is that there were kind of taboos about what historians talked about you know, for a long time, even dealing with genocide. So uh, cannibalism, you know, along with something like rape, was something you just didn't talk about. You know, you didn't, you didn't analyze, you didn't 
you know, get to the bottom of. You didn't try to document. You didn't count the numbers. Um, that's changing. I mean, we have fewer proscriptions on what we talk about in history, which is, I think, a good thing. Um, but for a while, you know, that wasn't considered something, you know, that, that was um, tasteful or worth exploring. You know, people understood it had happened. Uh, but, you know, we also sort of tended to think, well, you know, these were done by cannibals, meaning primitive peoples, you know, not by by Western peoples or advanced peoples or that sort of thing. And now we know that that's not true either. So um, I think that's part of the story um, that uh, historians didn't like to talk about it. They didn't like to document it. But that's changing. That's changing. And I see this, for example, again, I follow the Ukrainian stuff pretty closely these days. I see that people are really, uh, you know, uh, when I say the Ukrainian stuff, I mean historical studies on 3233 in particular, where there was vast hunger, right? And there was a lot of cannibalism. And, uh, um, and people are now, you know, documenting it. I mean, trying to show it. And same thing with the Chinese case, Mao case, you know, for a long time, people didn't talk about this at all. And then, you know, Ch some Chinese scholars began to discover these documents, some of which I cited in, in the world history. Um, you know, documents were coming from the countryside to the city saying, you know, we have 12 cases of cannibalism. We have 15 cases of cannibalism, you know. And uh, I think what's happening there is not cannibalism, again, being used as an instrument of genocide, but that, but that starvation, you know, is, is something that, you know, the Mao and the Chinese leadership was ready to suffer through. Uh, and therefore, you know, the people were left to their own devices. And in some cases, this meant cannibalism. Though you say that cannibalism arises out of the desperation that comes from famine, that's often a part of genocide. I still think that there is, now that I think about it, that there's a crucial difference between the crusade case and the Chinese case in that in the case of the crusades, it was the aggressing army that was cannibalizing the victims. Whereas in the Chinese genocide, it was the victims being forced to self-cannibalize. Yeah, but in both cases, I mean, in the case of the, the Chinese, it was the Chinese government that set up that situation, right? And the Chinese party, the CCP, that basically created the situation in which cannibalism could, could occur. And in the case of the Crusades, I mean, it's the Crusaders, right, who are doing it, but they also help create that situation in which they're hungry, you know, in which they need to eat. And, you know, I was thinking about your, your, uh, your hypothesis more or less that because they were the other, they were easier to eat. I mean, Again, this is the kind of subject scholars usually don't talk about, but it's worth, you know, like I said, it's worth broaching. It's worth broaching. I don't know, know if that's necessarily true. You know, I mean, uh, might be easier to eat, might be easier to eat your own kind versus eating somebody else, right? I mean, there's, they're more alien, and therefore maybe you don't want to. You're worried about poisoning yourself by eating. 
So I think it works. I think it works both ways. I don't. I don't think what you say necessarily. I mean, I've not studied it, but but uh, you know, my my impression is not not the same as yours. There. One reason that it seems at least facially plausible to me is that in the case of the Holocaust, for instance, something that enables the mass killing is the othering of oh, of the Jews. Absolutely. And killing is one thing, eating is another, I would say. Yeah, they're they're definitely different, but I I could see a, a similarity nonetheless, even though they're different. But okay. Moving on, getting closer to the present and shifting from Asia and Europe over to our side, the colonial genocides. Do you think of the Spanish conquest? And of course, it wasn't just the Spanish, but the conquest of South and Central America as maybe the single greatest genocide of them all. If we're uh, maybe you would object to that sort of measuring of them. But maybe you could trace out how you how you think about this situation. Um, it is certainly a tragedy of major proportions. I mean, major proportions. And you know, whether it's numerically the most or not, I wouldn't want to venture to guess. But um, you know, some people have suggested you know, ninety million people, eighty million people lost their lives as a result of the Spanish conquest that century, you know, of the span, the, you know, essentially the 16th century, you know, and, uh, um, it was a terrible, uh, destruction of human life. And, uh, and I decided, and, and, you know, looking at that, that piece of history, I more or less thought to myself, well, this absolutely belongs in the history of genocide. Uh, because what happens is again, mostly for, in this case, material reasons. I mean, the Spanish are trying to get money, silver, gold, precious jewels, um, and also exploit labor, uh, in order to get those, that, 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 the, the products of these mines. Um, the Spanish end up I mean, killing is a is a hard word here because a lot of times uh, they end up infecting the native uh, peoples of the region, you know, with um, with germs. I mean, some people have called it a germ genocide or that kind of thing. You know, they they you know bacteriological genocide because they bring with them all kinds of disease. And there's probably ninety percent of the people die of disease and exposure and hunger. I mean, it's also there's a lot of hunger involved uh, as well. Of the native peoples, and the Spanish inflict terrible uh, losses on the native peoples, also through military campaigns. So yes, I, I mean I think about it as a as a horrible genocide where tens of millions of people, you know, were destroyed by this conquest. And as you know, uh, if you read the book, then there's a, you know, there's this wonderful. Um, uh, priest de, la Casas, de las Casas, who observes and criticizes what's going on, and his observations are uh, devastating, you know, about what the Spanish are doing. And there's an argument among the Spanish, you know, are they human? Are the people there who are dying human or not? 
many of the churchmen say, no, they're not. They're not human. And de las Casas is one who argues, yes, they are human. And, uh, and, and they can be, which means they can be converted to Catholicism. The others say, no, they're somewhere between apes and humans. And therefore, they can't even be converted. So let's not bother. Now, we can exploit them like you exploit animals, you know, like oxen. You know, you hook them up to a yoke and they do the work for you. Um, and that argument, you know, went on during the entire Spanish occupation. But the reality, of course, you know, the argument went on back in Spain. But the reality on the ground is you exploit if you can exploit. And they did. They really exploited the native population and drove them into the ground. Right. Now, this are they human question? I mean, it resonates all throughout the colonial genocides from the United States to Australia and the Aborigines, Africa and the San Bushmen and on and on. But first, and and not at all as if this is unrelated, another component of genocide that we haven't discussed yet really is slavery. And what role did this play in the Spanish genocide. And then, I mean, since we've been taking a, a very diachronic, to use that word again, uh, perspective on things, has slavery often been a part of genocide historically? And this goes to the goes back to the are they human question. I think the answer to that uh, is a complicated one. I mean, it's not as easy. Because if you put people in slavery, you know, as we did, for example, in the United States, Right, the African African population that was brought over and put in manacles and put to work. Right, you want them to work. You want to feed them enough so they can work. You want to keep them alive enough so they can work. You want to have them procreate enough so that their children who grow up and work. And you know that's part of the story of slavery. So slaves. Um, you know, I'd never get involved in the argument that there's anything good about slavery. But it's not the same thing as genocide. In the Spanish case, I think they were less interested in slavery than they were in control of these people and using them then to the, in ways that they wanted. Sometimes as slaves, sometimes as forced labor, sometimes as indentured labor on the land, sometimes, you know, in different... So, so there's not an institution, in other words, of slavery, where all of the, you know, Central American and South American native peoples were, you know, you are now slave versus free man, but you are now you know, a subhuman dependent upon your Spanish rulers. And um, the result is, is, is much different. In other words, in the, in the case of the uh, Central Americans, South Americans, who were, who were put to work, you know, in the mines and, and on the Encoñadas and in, you know, various institutions that the Spanish created to create economic wealth, um, these peoples were uh, died in various ways. And that from the Spanish point of view, it wasn't that you fed them more, 
that you kept them alive, but you just replaced them with more. There was a sense that there was an, you know, an in, in, uh, exhaustible, um, quantity of, uh, people who could do this job or do these jobs. And so, uh, you know, they just went through the population until, by the way, they ended up not having enough people. So by the end of the century, they started bringing in African slaves or Africans to work in the, you know, to take the place of the native peoples, the indigenous peoples of the region, um, who were no longer available, you know, for this kind of, uh, this kind of work. So, um, and that ended up then, you know, encouraging the slave trade uh, in this region. And, and maybe then later, you know, the slaves were not destroyed in the way the native peoples were destroyed. You know, I mean, they were just wiped out. I mean, the Tainos, you know, or people in, uh, in the Caribbean, they're totally wiped out. They're almost completely, you know, it's interesting. You can't wipe completely wipe out of people. It never, it doesn't ever quite happen, uh, in genocide, even if that's your goal, your intent. But, you know, the Tainos, for all practical purposes, several hundred thousand of them were, were killed. Or, or died uh, under Spanish uh, rule, including, by the way, Chris, Christopher Columbus, who was not very gentle with the Tainos either. Zooming out again for a little bit, what do you identify as, or if there are any, key differences between the colonial or, or the settler or colonial as we've been referring to them genocides and then the ones we've already discussed and one thing i found interesting when reading was there are often secular justifications in terms of race and then the british conception of property rights which i'd never really thought about that that those who tilled and worked the land owned it which many of the indigenous cultures did not do as part of their manner of life. Well, I think, I think, um, you know, that's characteristic, this kind of 17th century idea, British idea of, of property and who gets to farm and that kind of thing, who owns the land, who, who has right to the land, um, you know, does spread out with colonial empires. And it's quite clear that the indigenous peoples, who have, you know, various forms of, uh, economy. I mean, it's not as if they're all hunter gatherers. I mean, some of them have, you know, very well developed, uh, local economies, but don't have well developed ideas of property rights. And even when they do, they tend to be rolled over by the colonial authorities anyway, who don't recognize those forms of property rights. So, um, so you so you have these uh colonial peoples coming in and uh you know seizing the land as theirs and not recognizing the uh rights of the indigenous peoples and not even thinking about kind of their cultural way of dealing with uh, the economy or, or the you know the various um nomadic lifestyles or or whatever is there you know moving your herds from one place to another you think that those are your grasslands right but that's not how the 
the ranchers thought about it in North America or in South Africa or or anywhere. So, uh, you know, this property rights issue is a huge one. But it's overlaid then with race. And, uh, you know, the beginnings uh, of really strong racial thinking, which happens, by the way, already with the Spanish in South America. And, uh, um, you know, this notion that these are inferior peoples, not just that they can't deal with property, property properly, but that they're not, as I was saying, fully human, or that they're lesser humans, even if you recognize their humanity, even if you recognize that they can be converted, for example, they're still not quite the same. Um, and therefore, they can be uh, expropriated. Uh, their land can be taken from them. They can be shot and killed or, or murdered. So, you know, the, the, the settler genocide, extremely widespread phenomenon. I mean, it's very interesting in the historiography that we, you know, the scholars didn't pay a lot of attention to this until the turn of this century. You know, it's really been fairly recent. I mean, there was a lot of stuff that came out, you know, the 70s, the 80s, 90s of the last century about American Indians and how they'd been exploited and that kind of thing. But it was all very um, kind of political and excessive and overwrought. Um, and the real scholarship, you know, was really with this century. Um, you know, started by a group of English and Australian historians, British historians, a couple of people in South Africa, a couple of people in the United States who started, you know, doing very serious work on um, what happened to the indigenous peoples. and. Um, you know, there was a book, uh, oh, I, I can't remember when it was published exactly, I'm going to guess 2008, something like that, um, by this guy, um, Benjamin Badley, who's at UCLA, called California Genocide. And, you know, it shows that what happened with the tribes in California is that they were systematically uh, killed, uh, you know, with the data, and with modern, you know, all kinds of good archival uh, materials that, that, uh, you know, demonstrate his point of view, creating new knowledge, as we talked about earlier on Fresh about uh, what happened to the California tribes. And, uh, you know, it was only a few years ago, uh, I was at the ceremony in Sacramento where uh, the governor got up and said in front of a group of, um, California tribes, you know, we're, genocide happened to you and we're really we're really sorry about it i mean he didn't have a real program for dealing with that observation but you know at least he made the observation and uh you know i mean we're talking about not very many years ago right when when in point of fact these things happened in the 1860s 1870s 1880s you know so we're talking much more than a century ago and it's only in our own century, that this has been uh, recognized in, in a kind of substantial way, and I'm sure for the for the tribes, for the Native Americans in California, it's not recognized enough, you know, and not compensated enough for. Continuing with this question of race and who deserves the land, in a sense, do you view the and, and we're switching again geographically, but do you view the 
the genocide of the Tasmanian Aborigines as a good example of one. I mean, there were certainly racial components, but it seemed like it was predicated predominantly on economic considerations. Well, again, we, we, you know, we, we, we talked about um, property issues, how people thought about property and who gets to have the land. Then we talked about racial issues and, and, you know, the sense on the part of the settlers that they were superior uh, racially, you know, to the peoples who uh, live there, uh, the indigenous peoples who live there. Um, this goes for Tasmania as well, in both cases. Uh, but then you're right, of course, there's the third component, and the component is sheer avariciousness on the part of those uh, white settlers who... Um, you know, we're looking uh, to increase their wealth and to increase their power uh, as a result of increased wealth. Uh, some were more brutal than others. Some were more racist than others. Some had more ideological ideas in mind than others. But when it came right down to it, they wanted land and they wanted uh, to use the land for their profit. Mm -hmm. And... Um, you know, what factor figures in more, I think, is not a kind of uh, exercise that's going to work for the same case everywhere. But I think you're right in the case of Tasmania, especially given wool and the price of wool in the English markets and how that all worked in the 1820s and 1830s, that people were looking to get rich. It was a little bit like what happened in the California gold rush, too. You know, when the California gold rush happened, um, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people moved into Northern California and all of a sudden they had to be fed. And these ranchers' eyes got big, right? And said, oh, whoopee, you know, I just need some more grazing land and we're going to feed them prime beef. And it, that that the native tribes were on those uh, lands didn't matter much. Sometimes they were racist. Sometimes they, you know, had ideas about who should have property and not. But, you know, economic motivations were very powerful. And, and by the way, you can go all the way back again to what we were talking about, the Spanish in South, in South America and Central America. And, you know, I'm convinced there that their economic motivations were overwhelming, overwhelming. You know, there was the race part. There was the property issue part. But overwhelmingly, they were looking for gold and silver and their eyes just lit up. You know, when they saw that it was there. And after all, remember, their idea was they were going to India, you know, to trade in precious spices and jewels with Europe. And they didn't end up in India, but they did end up someplace where they had the, there were jewels available and there was gold and there was silver. So, um, yes, economic motivations are extremely powerful. Uh, there's no question about it. Mm -hmm. Not the not the all of these historical examples aren't indicative beyond the economic component, but of either a, a double standard or extreme prejudice or a, a sense of this notion of a sense of inherent racial superiority that you were just talking about. But there there was one episode in the Tasmanian genocide that stuck out to me where I think it was right after settlers killed two Aborigine women, which was, I mean, totally par for the course, the 
Aborigines responded by killing three white women. And the settlers then responded to this by declaring martial war on every Aborigine on the island and seriously just trying to exterminate them as a response to this. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that, that's a, is, is a powerful thing that happens, not just in Tasmania, but all over, you know, um, and you, you can only, you only, you can feel for the, for the native peoples. I mean, for the indigenous peoples, because, you know, if they offer resistance, then that really inflames, you know, the white settlers who believe in, again, in their superiority, in their superiority of place, um, in their decency, in their goodness, and therefore, you know, that, that these people offer resistance is considered, uh, uh, you know, a sin of sorts, and therefore wipe out, wipe out huge numbers of them. The same thing happens again, uh, I think I talked about the Yuki people in my book too, who lived up in Mendocino County. The same thing happens there, where you know the cat. The, I mean, these these Yuki are starving. They're hungry, right? They've taken away the they've taken away the land uh, for grazing land, and the result is uh, they don't have anything to eat anymore. You know, they're, the stuff that they hunt and gather is gone as a result of the uh, settlers coming in and seizing lands and using them. And so they kill a cow or two and that does it, you know, and you get the same, you know, then the, then the posses come in and kill, kill the Yuki, you know, because they have, they have killed their cattle. And sometimes they'll even kill the white man. You know, there's a new historiography. I should, I should mention this. There are a number of mo- most recent books that have come out. I mean, two or three of them. Uh, uh, which have emphasized, and I think it's important to do so, the resistance, right, of indigenous peoples to the white man, and sometimes quite successful resistance. I mean, not so much in the California genocide situation, but much more sort of in the Middle West and, um, you know, Minnesota and places like that. Some of these tribes, you know, were very effective in resisting the white man's encroachments. And, um, you know, we're able uh, to defeat, you know, these groups of rangers and and uh, posses and uh, even army uh, detachments in some quite, quite serious ways. So the fighting, you know, in Texas, Oklahoma, Apaches, Comanches, you know, others in the northern plains, um, you know, sometimes in the in the east, um, you know, there was uh, quite considerable resistance. And, you know, we need to we need to pay attention to that, too. I mean, I wouldn't overemphasize it too much. You know, I, mean, I think fundamentally the indigenous peoples were victims. Um, and they were victims of superior technology and uh, weaponry and, you know, that kind of thing. But at the same time, there was resistance. So and, and you find that the um, um, that the survival of indigenous peoples, you know, their ability uh, to get through this period of mass murder uh, is quite extraordinary. I mean, that there are these tribes, that they're out there, that they have their reservations, that they're trying to, you know, that they're building their casinos and that they're, you know, fighting for their land to get it back and that they're dealing with the environmental problems. So it's quite extraordinary if you think about it. 
because for you know whole decades uh, they were under fearsome attack. So uh, that's part of the story too that I wanted to be sure to mention. And like I said, there's some recent very good books on this subject. Hmm. Well, there are plenty, far too many colonial and settler genocides, and we can't talk about all of them. And given given our time constraints, I want to move closer to the present again, uh, toward the modern period and the Armenian genocide, because that's one you've already mentioned. And it is one that I have always heard about, but never really knew anything about until reading your book. But before that, I, I just wanted to ask more broadly, what are some of the factors of modernity, say, I mean, the past 100 to 200 years that, I mean, despite our purported enlightenment, which a lot of people trumpet, have contributed to the, I mean, the continued proliferation up to the present of genocides across the world? So uh, some people will argue, actually, that uh, genocide is a modern phenomenon. In other words, that it you know, some people say what happened in prehistory or medieval period or early modern period is not genocide. I was one of those at one point. Um, when I wrote my, that first book, uh, Fires of Hatred, I, it was about 20th century Europe. And, um, and I made the argument there that there were elements of modernity, you know, that were crucial for genocide, you know, some of them being things like censuses, modern weapons, and the ability to identify people, and the ability to, you know, move uh, large numbers of people, uh, you know, by rail or, or whatever, to specific destinations. Um, so, uh, modern racism, you know, so there's a particular kind of racism that comes at the end of the 19th and beginning of 20th century. Where, I mean, the, uh, as I mentioned, the Spanish already had ideas of racism where, you know, blood of the blood of Jews and Muslims was different from that of the Spanish Christians. So they already had this idea of kind of blood. Um, but the kind of modern racism that comes, uh, again, at the end of the 19th and beginning of 20th century, influenced by, you know, Darwin and by Neo-Darwinists. I mean, Darwin's not to blame. It's the, his followers who have a lot to do with this. You know, start saying that, you know, you're, you're inferior, uh, because of your, you know, who you are, your nature, that we're all different. I mean, that was already clear from the beginning of the 19th century. You know, people like Herder who said, well, every nation's a little bit different. But then, you know, at the end of the 19th century, people began to make hierarchies of nature, of, of peoples. And they're superior peoples and they're inferior peoples. And they made a science out of it, you know, in kind of neo-Darwinist uh, terms. Um, and there were a number of thinkers, you know, who developed this idea that then was picked up, of course, by people like Hitler, who then in Mein Kampf, you know, set forth this whole racial theory of um, uh, people's existence. So this modern nationalism is really crucial to modernity. And, you know, you could, you could walk like a, a German, you could talk like a German, you could dress like a German, you could do everything German, 
but you you weren't German if you, if you had a Jewish grandmother. Well, that's that's the kind of racialism that you know wasn't there at the beginning of the nineteenth century. Where if you walk like a German, you look like a German, you talk like a German, you had converted to Christianity, you were a German, right? That changes at the end of the 19th century, and that changes for a lot of people. And this goes for sometimes for indigenous peoples as well. You know, if they if they converted, if they dressed, talked, walked, and they had everything but, a, you know, a, let's say a darker skin, they were, you know, they were acceptable frequently into society. Um, the same thing with the Armenians in the, uh, the Ottoman Empire. You know, if they looked and acted like everybody else, they were fully accepted. Um, so uh, I, I guess the, I guess the point is that modernity has a certain ideology behind it, as well as a, a technology behind it. So the technology I mentioned, you know, has to do with communications. It has to do with modern weaponry. It has to do with you know, you can shoot a whole lot more people with a machine gun than you can with a you know, single loading carbine. And uh, um, uh, it's just a, a, a level of technology, you know, that makes possible uh, the kind of genocides we've seen in the 20th century, even something like barbed wire. You know, it was invented at a certain point in the late 19th century, I think, and then, you know, using barbed wire and to keep people in big pens. You know, that was, uh, that was uh, you know, not possible earlier on. So um, modernity has, you know, certain um, me mentalities to it, as well as technologies, as well as political systems. I mean, that's the other piece of the story, so kind of political system, you know, that makes it possible to mobilize people in genocidal situations. So that, that's sort of how I would say it. But, but I still think that Genocide goes back in all the way into history. And that, you know, you can periodize it. You can say, okay, modern genocides may be a little bit different because of the technological and also ideological backgrounds uh, to them. Um, uh, but it's part of the same phenomenon. You know, the intentional killing of a group of people or all of, of, of people. When you say that modernity has its own kind of mentalities, the, the first thing that immediately came to my mind was the industrial mentality and you can see how that manifested itself in the holocaust but one thing before we get to the armenian genocide is by the way not just in the holocaust but in the soviet case as well you know i mean we have soviet modernity and whether they do they put people in these gulags where they're working in big factories and in mines and stuff like that and many of them die right and so you have you know in in the in, in, the creation of modern industry, the industrial revolution beginning in the 19th century, but then the kind of, you know, merging of that with race and with uh, War. Uh, certain technological innovations and weaponry and that kind of thing, you know, does make for a kind of special 20th century nasty mix. Yeah. And, and, and just to comment on how you started off, it's just, it's very surprising to me. I hadn't ever thought about it that, a new sort of racism in the 1900s could have contributed to genocidal tendencies when I would have thought that racism couldn't have gotten worse than the colonial period and the slavery of that time. But I understand it makes perfect sense how Darwin and other changes in thought would have resulted in, in different thinking about race. But anyway, as I, as I said a few minutes ago, I know almost nothing about the Armenian genocide, and it also seems to be particularly controversial because unlike 
the Holocaust, it seems to me just from hearsay and, and the way it comes up in the news that there's a very sizable group of people who deny that it occurred. So what is the story here and why does it allow for this level of controversy? Okay, uh, so there are a number of dimensions to trying to answer that question. First of all, uh, denial uh, is built into genocide. Almost every people who commit genocide deny it, including white folks in the United States who denied what happened to Indians for a long time, right? And there's still some who do. Um, or, or Australians who denied that anything bad happened to uh, Aborigines or Canadians who denied that anything happened badly to the um, First Peoples, as they're called, uh, and so on. Um, so denial is all part of it. People deny uh, genocide almost when it's created. I mean, even, you know, Hitler in the Second World War denied it. genocide, you know, even though he was secretly proud of it. He wouldn't publicly say, I'm proud of the fact, you know, that I killed all these Jews. Instead, he, he, he would deny it. And, you know, they tried to cover it up as well. I don't know if you know that, but they tried to cover up genocide, you know, dig up the bodies afterwards, rebury them, you know, burn them, rebury them, scatter the ashes so nobody would find them. Um, in the case of the Armenian genocide, the Turks, for a lot of different reasons, um, continued to, and when I say Turks, I have to be careful because it's the Turkish government in particular, and some Turkish politicians and intellectuals on the right deny the Armenian genocide. You'd be surprised how many regular old Turks know exactly what happened and don't deny the Armenian genocide. By the way, there's no, Controversy in scholarly circles, whether there was an Armenian genocide or not. There are some scholars who will write denialist literature. We've got them in this country too. And they do it for some perverse uh, reason, in my view, having to do sometimes with ties, even financial ties to the Turkish government. Um, but, you know, the vast bulk of scholars... I mean, sometimes they don't like to use the word genocide for reasons I've suggested to you earlier. But they all know what happened to the Armenians, which is they were wiped out. Right? Everybody knows that. And the Turks, again, will engage in various forms of denial. Uh, in this country, uh, in the West, you know, most countries, most even states have... Um, resolutions that say, you know, about the Armenian genocide. In California, certainly, which has a big Armenian-American uh, community. Okay, so uh, so there's denial is part of the story, and you just have to deal with it. You know, it's just one of those things for a lot of different reasons that we could talk about having to do with Turkish society, Turkish memory, you know, Turkish Turk's sense of self. You know, they think of themselves, and they usually are, wonderfully hospitable, lovely, Delightful, generous people. That's how they like to think of themselves. And so how could we commit genocide? It's not possible. Right? So there's denial. Um, but most scholars understand that this is not the case. And, uh, you know, what happened in 1915 is, a, 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 you know, it's a cumulative story of increasing antagonism between both the Armenian and the Turkish communities in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, as it entered into World War One, 
you know, that's an important part of the story, the context of World War One, the fact that the Turks had lost a lot of territory in the Balkans and were feeling put upon uh, by the West, the fact that they had allied with the Germans uh, in World War One, and the Germans didn't care very much about what was happening, the fact that the Armenians were seen as allies of the Western allies, especially of the Russians, who were part of the you know, Western alliance with Britain and France. And the Armenians were seen as sympathetic to the Russians. I mean, some of them were. The Armenians also, by the way, saw trouble coming. Some of them armed themselves. There were some uprisings. I mean, the Armenians fought. Um, but a little bit like I was describing with the indigenous peoples who fought. You know, if you fought, then the anger and the resentment and the hatred of the authorities was even more, you know. And so they came down on the Armenians in 1915. Um, this is after the beginning of World War I, when things were not looking very good for the Turks. They came down hard on the Armenians as a kind of traitor people. There was some racism involved. I mean, there was a kind of Turkism, a pan-Turkism that also contributed to that racism. Uh, there was anti-Christian uh, feelings involved, which had developed in a very powerful way. You know, there were also Greeks in the Ottoman Empire who were driven out, many of them killed. Syriac Christians who were attacked, many of them killed, also could be considered a genocide. And so... Uh, you know, this all came to a head. There was a kind of collective state of mind among the leadership, the young Turk leadership, which was actually modern and uh, made up of a lot of doctors and army officers and that sort of thing. And they just decided that's it. So they're going to deport the Armenians, you know, out of the eastern Anatolia where they lived in central Anatolia and Istanbul or, or Constantinople at the time. And uh, they were going to deport them uh, uh, you know, across Anatolia into Mesopotamia, where they were going to then die, probably. And the Turkish government knew they would die there because, again, we were dealing with the problem of food. We we're dealing about a trek across the desert where they were given no food or water or very little. And they died in huge numbers. The Armenians died in huge numbers. And uh, it soon became a deportation of all the Armenians, pretty much. And, you know, we don't know. The numbers are disputed. Uh, you know, our, most Armenian scholars will say about 1.5 million, million Armenians were killed in the Armenian genocide. Some will say the, the lowest number is about 800,000. Uh, the Turks say, you know, Maybe 80,000 died or 60,000 died, but it was their own fault. You know, that kind of thing. They attacked us and therefore, you know, uh, we had to deal with them. Um, it was a terrible, uh, terrible uh, destruction, you know, of the Ottoman uh, Armenian community. And then, you know, the scattering of the Armenians all over. I mean, then many left scattered all over the world, you know, to the United States, to France, to Britain, um, to Lebanon, uh, as a way to escape, you know, this uh, terrible genocide. So there's not really much of an argument 
uh, among American scholars about this, among scholars of genocide. There are some Turkish historians who will say, no, there wasn't a genocide. That's not right. And then there are a few who will say, well, let's not call it a genocide. Let's call it, you know, deportation and massacre, you know, that together. Uh, but on the whole, I think uh, there's a real consensus that's developed. And and by the way, not just among Armenian, I mean, among American Armenian scholars, European scholars, but among many Turkish scholars who, who are not allowed to talk about it uh, and who keep quiet generally now about it because you can get in trouble. There was a time when you could go to jail. I don't think that's true anymore. But it's interesting. You know, there's still an openness, I think, in, in Turkey to thinking about the Armenian genocide. And this book that we edited um, with my colleagues, uh, Ran Suni and um, Fatma Muga Gocek on the Armenian genocide, you know, was published in Turkish. I mean, it was a number of years ago, it was 10 years ago, but still, you know, that was a time when in theory they were denying the genocide, but you could still every once in a while publish something that could, could talk about the truth. Well, uh, Norman, we didn't get to the communist genocide, the, the Holocaust, uh, Kosovo, Darfur, Rwanda. There are plenty, but there's room for more in the future. And one last thing that I want to ask, so maybe we might end on something approaching more of a positive note, is have there been or do you foresee any developments in society, culture, politics, anything like that worldwide? Um the legal system that might lessen the pervasion of genocide in the future of humankind? So, I mean, there's, again, there, uh, there's no easy answer to that question. I think, um, you know, what, again, what's going on in Ukraine today, you know, maybe both a positive and negative example uh, of, uh, you know, room for hope and, and despair, you know, that these things still go on. So let me let me just uh, tell you what's on my mind about that now, and uh, maybe that's that's the right answer to your question. Um, you know, the despair uh, comes from uh, what the Russians did in occupied Ukraine, uh, places like uh, Bucha and uh, others in occupied Ukraine, where they shot people. Um, randomly on the street, raped women, tortured people, clearly committing crimes against humanity. Uh, you know, they're, they're categories of, of uh, international atrocity crimes and crimes against humanity is one of those categories. And they're clearly committing crimes against humanity and war crimes and crimes of aggression too. Um, are they committing genocide or not? Well, some people think they are. Uh, I mean, they've been close to, I think, 10,000 cases of uh, war crimes being identified already uh, in, in the occupied areas of Ukraine. So that's, that's a source of, um, you know, and what I would say is that, and, and there's an ideology, I mean, I should mention that there's an ideology, a Russian ideology, which denies Ukrainian nationality. Denies Ukrainian distinctiveness. I mean, Putin has made this argument, you know, suggesting that one of the things the Russians are after is getting rid of Ukrainians as Ukrainians, which would be genocide. Uh, 
They're, they're also transferring children, which is one of the acts that's specifically mentioned in the Genocide Convention as an indicator of genocide, you know, as one of those acts that it constitutes genocide. So there are all these indications of genocide there. And, you know, it's up for the courts to pretty much, and historians, once we get a lot more information, to decide, you know, look at all these cases and to put it together. And the International Criminal Court is doing so. That's a real sign, in my view, of despair. Meaning, in this day and age, out there in front of the cameras, you know, genocide is being committed. Maybe. Who knows? You know, we're on the way, or it looks like we're on the way. We don't know. Ukrainians may win, and 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 who knows what will happen to those people they've captured and whether they'll stand, stand trial for genocide. By the way, um, Putin has been indicted by the International Criminal Court uh, for uh, crimes against humanity, you know, war crimes. So, you know, he may stand trial one day. Who knows? You know, you can't tell. Um, so that's the sign of despair, right? I mean, it means that, that, so what's changed, right? I mean, here we have it again, you know, just like with Bosnia or with Rwanda, it's on our television screens and we see it and we see these dead bodies strewn across the landscape of Izum and, and, and Bucha and other places. Um, we read about the torture and the mass killing and that kind of thing. So, you know, it's just, a, it's just, you know, humanity hasn't changed. Now, with that said, there are signs of hope. First of all, the International Criminal Court has been very active, which means it's collecting evidence. It's making it clear that it's involved. It's setting priorities for dealing with atrocity crimes. In other words, in, you know, before Bosnia, certainly, people paid very little attention to atrocity crimes. Even in Nuremberg, as I mentioned to you, that wasn't considered the main thing at Nuremberg at all. But now the court and international human rights organizations, governments are paying a lot of attention and they're publicizing what's going on. I think, and again, this is very tentative on my part and I can't, uh, you know, I can't, I can't say conclusively, I think it's making a difference. I think that maybe the Russians are being deterred from committing more atrocity crimes. I mean, they're, I mean, let's face it there. I mean, they're lobbing missiles into schools and into hospitals and that sort of thing. I mean, they haven't stopped, right, this sort of terrible destructiveness uh, that can occur in this wartime situation. But this up-close atrocity as far as I can tell, has diminished somewhat. And this could be because of international norms, international human rights norms. So if you get on Russian TV, as I sometimes do, and watch what they say, they're talking in those terms too. It's the Although they're saying it's the Ukrainians who are doing all these nasty things, right? But they're also defending themselves in some ways according to these norms saying, well, we are transferring children, but it's good for the children. 
you know, we're putting them into, into homes. You know, the children, Ukrainian children are receiving great, great, you know, food and support and moving into homes and schools. I mean, a lot of this is lies. But the point is they're, they're addressing themselves to international human rights norms. And so I think that those norms have been and are making a difference. You know, that around the world, we are attuned, more attuned, you know, to questions of genocide. Let me use one more example and then we'll, we'll call it a day. And that is uh, with the Uyghurs, you know, in China. So this group of people who live in Xinjiang, you know, who are Muslim people and have been locked up in these retraining camps, some of them killed, some of them commit suicide. Initially, there were a lot of charges of genocide against the Chinese. You don't hear that anymore. The Chinese seem to have backed off a little bit on the most extreme actions against the Uyghurs. I'm not saying that genocide did not occur, or won't occur, anything like that. But it seems to me the Chinese are backing off and trying to defend themselves according to international norms. And in doing that, we're now talking less about uh, genocide than we're talking about other kinds of crimes, right? Maybe crimes against humanity, maybe torture, um, that kind of thing, right? Rather than, a, 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 you know, some people consider genocide the crime of crimes. I don't want to get into that argument now. That's too late. The hour is too late. But if genocide is the crime against crimes, I think what's happened is that accusing the Chinese of genocide, which people have done, which our government did at one point, has, had, has seen that the Chinese have backed off it a little bit. And uh, that is a sign of hope. You know, that these norms are, you know, despite the lying, despite the prevarication, despite the hypocrisy on the part of the people committing these crimes, that they're backing off some of the worst aspects of it. And, and that is encouraging in some senses, and maybe will prevent future uh, atrocities like we've seen in Ukraine. Well, Norman, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. This conversation was everything I had hoped it would be. And thanks again for joining me. Okay, well, thanks for the invitation. It was nice and I'm exhausted. So there you go. Hold on. If you haven't subscribed, liked, commented, or reviewed, that would be so helpful. And if you haven't yet, you could also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Robinson Airhome.